And welcome to the latest edition of Let Me Tell You Something. And it's another episode of what's going to be a little mini odyssey of Osprey five-star matches. As myself, your regular Let Me Tell You Something co-host, Lorca Mullen, and your other Let Me Tell You Something co-host, Simon Cross. Pick up after our little self-imposed break. Unintentional at the time, but over time it did become increasingly intentional. To... (laughs) Pick up where we left off, and where we left off only a week ago wasn't that bad. But it seems like Will Ospreay is the man of the moment, as he has been for many moments in recent months and years of wrestling. We have four five-star matches, or at least five-star matches, to cover at time of recording. And God knows before the end of this, how many more we might still have to do to get us back up to date. There is an AEW pay-per-view over the horizon, and I am scared. (laughs) But Simon, what is the first of at least four matches involving Will Ospreay that we'll be talking about that happened in the month of August? This is a match taking place in the G1 group stage, or block stage, to give it its proper name. It is a match between Will Ospreay and one of his best five-star accomplices, I would say in some ways, Shingo Takagi, in terms of sheer number of five-star matches anyway. I was thinking, actually, I sent you a text when it happened. I think they've never had a match that Meltzer's rated below five stars. They've had matches he rates above five stars, but not below. They they have definitely got, in his eyes, the magic chemistry. It's one of those situations where now, whenever those two are paired together, there's, there's, there's added pressure, I think, in some circles, because of... Because of this rich vein of form they've had together in the ring. You you look at it whenever it's lined up, and you do genuinely get excited. And I I was thinking about the other side of the coin a little bit beforehand, like, are we going to get burnt out with Shingo and Will? And and that's probably something we'll we'll talk about as we go deeper into this episode. But I'm sorry, I interrupted you there. You go ahead with what you were going to say. So yeah, the stat I had was, this is the fifth singles match, I believe, that they've had with one another. And this is how the ratings have gone from Dave Meltzer so far. It, it was uh, best of the Super Juniors 2019 final, which was a lot of people's pick for match of the year for 2019. Uh, Meltzer gave that one five and three quarter stars. Then they both graduated to the heavyweight division in 2020 with them facing each other at the G1 2020. And that match got five stars from Meltzer, which is the rock bottom for these th- for these two. Because then they faced off in the New Japan Cup in 2021, which was a five and a half star match. Then they had the match at Don Taku for the IWGP World Heavyweight Championship. I think that was for the vacant title, wasn't it? Yeah, that was after No, Bushi's no, it wasn't, no. no, because he beat Ibushi for it. So it was his first defense after that Ibushi. That was it. Yeah. yeah. And that one got six stars. And now we come to their most recent match, G1 2022. And Meltzer gave that one a slight step down. That This is merely a five and a half star match, Simon. I mean, why are we even bothering? Yeah, I mean, we're going to power through it. Because I was saying when we were doing this, I can't see this episode going much longer than 15 minutes. Yeah. I mean, there's stuff to talk about. 
one of the things that I like when tournaments are booked is when they tell a story over the course of the tournaments. And one thing that's clear going into this already is that these two men are, are walking wounded. They're almost having to warm each other up over the course of the match. Like, it doesn't go at that frenetic pace yeah. that you so often associate with them until about the halfway point. So the thing with every Osprey Takagi match is they always have that insanely quick reversal sequence. Usually it comes towards the start of the match, but we're about halfway into the match, and I made a note as I was watching it of... Um, the reversal sequence hasn't happened. Mm. Uh, both men seem sore going into this, and also they're much more wary of each other. But then it's almost like the instinct kicks in and they do go into the super fast reversal sequences at about the halfway point, and that pushes them up again. Yeah. And there's also, I think at this point, there's there's needle in this match now, especially there, there's a bit of the old... Um, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery and it's also like one of the biggest disses you can do as a professional wrestler with both men at points in the match trying each other's moves on for size it's just like showing that we are at now this gay this ends i don't end game might not be the right word we're at this point now in the shingo will rivalry where they are fully established with each other they've grown they've literally grown together in terms of like mass if you look at um, Will at the start and Will now. Um, and they're at this stage where they, they, they're they so intertwined that it sort of make it, it makes them better. And there's this like sort of big brother, younger brother, like respect, but they'd never, ever. I don't know. It. I would, I would disagree about the big brother, younger brother aspect. To me, that is Osprey's relationship with Okada is very big brother little brother mm. this is more just professional rivalry i suppose it's more like um okada's relationship with naito there's, okay. no, though, yeah. there's not as much affection between the two as there seems to be now between naito and okada but there is that sense of being each other's peers really yeah. that they came up at the same time to the status that they're at within new japan obviously shingo, shingo takagi is a much more experienced an older wrestler than mm. Osprey, like I think he's got at least uh, got about ten years on him, but he's also one of the few people that can keep up with Osprey at Osprey's pace. Yeah, and also with that one, uh, Osprey is the thorn in Takagi's side because the next match we're going to cover is about the, the thorn that's in Osprey's side. That final hurdle he can't jump over just yet, anyway. Whereas I think with Takagi. The one person that he's never really been able to get a proper sense of having one up on is Osprey. I think he beat him in the G1 match. But the best of the Super Juniors for the final, the the New Japan Cup. Maybe maybe it was in the New Japan Cup that Takagi beat Osprey. But anyway, Osprey's coming into this with the superior status. You know, he beat him mm. in the world title match at Don Taku. No, he must have beaten him in the New Japan Cup because then he went on to face Ibushi afterwards. So I think Osprey's 3-1 going into this one. Right, right. Although, and also going into this, Takagi's on 1-2 and Osprey's on 2-1. Now, this G1, we were saying going in that there weren't that many matches because obviously there have been previous Augusts where we've just been bombarded with G1 matches. <laughs> it's one of the um, most fear... Well, not fear... 
uh, in terms of well fear in terms of the amount of we ha- amount we have work we have to do it's probably the scariest month of the year yeah, or has been previously now it's more whenever there's an AEW pay-per-view I suppose yep that gets us worked up especially if that then coincides with a major Japan show as well but with this one it's um well the formatting the expanding of it also can reduce the number of matches everyone had to do so it was instead of it being the the standard two blocks of ten, it was turned into four blocks of seven. Mm. So everyone was only having to wrestle six matches. And unfortunately, the quality pool of wrestlers was diluted a bit, somewhat. Or or at the very least, the people being brought in, you know. Yeah. Your AEW Loney was Lance Sartre, who's a great for what he is, but he's not a Meltzer five-star botherer. No. And Yujiro Takahashi, the thing that's most upsetting about all this is that he wins three matches in this tournament. (laughs) If that's not a sign of diluting in the G1 Climax, I don't know what is. I guess it's because Japan's cautious attitude towards COVID or or unavailability. But we haven't had a a lot of the A-list from AEW come over yet. Obviously, we're, we're, we're past Forbidden Door now, so there's signs that they will work together. But we haven't had a proper... It's not like Moxley like, who had his run in the G1. We've not had him repeat yes. return. We've not had the fabled Danielson in Japan run. No. Or anything like that. Maybe next year. Which I think I have predicted. Yeah. But I do think there is significance that the talent that Tony Khan loans out to them is Lance Archer. Who obviously had history with New Japan anyway. But I think there's also significance that may... I mean... I would think Danielson wants to do a G1. And maybe... Khan will allow him to do a G1, but you've also got to... See, this is where we've got all the dream scenarios in our head of all the things that, that we could do, but you've also got to remember with these things, like, Tony Khan invests a certain amount of money into Brian Danielson, and he also knows that there's only a finite amount of time you can extract from Danielson at this point in his career. Yeah. Are you going to give away six to ten high... and Because you know Danielson's going to push himself physically. Yeah to the max, especially in the G1 Climax, are you going to lose 10 of those matches from your paid-for talent just to placate another promotion that's making money off of it? It's there you're weighing it up against trying to keep your own talent happy, and obviously one of the reasons Danielson chose AEW, along with wanting to be able to bleed, uh, I don't know what to say about that, Mm -hmm. is that he wants those... Japanese dates. He wants to work with New Japan. He wants to work in New Japan. You know, he kept asking WWE to do that, and they never yeah. quite. I mean, the closest they came was in this build-up to Danielson leaving, and they were talking about it. They were talking about it, but then there's talking about it, and then there's Danielson signs on the dotted line, and they've got them for three years, and suddenly things can fall apart. You know? Yeah, I, I guess he's looked at um, how things change very quickly, and in. in... In the atmosphere that WWE was at the time he was making his decision. Who knows now? And as I'm saying, because the story of this match going in is that these guys are already physically taxed and bruised and they are slow to start. And isn't Osprey coming in off of his one loss like at this point? Uh, yes, he, he lost to David Finlay in a bit of an upset. Yeah. So his ego's bruised as well as his body. Yes. There is that, and, and like I said, that's what I like about tournaments when you can tell that story over time. They did that brilliant story of Okada winning all these matches, but it, his body gradually becoming more and more beaten up and taped yeah. 
to the point that Evil's able to beat him. And then on the final night, he's going in against Omega and he's completely fucked. Yeah. Especially his neck. And Omega's able to target that and get his first win over him. So when a tournament can tell that story. So we're on the course of this journey with Osprey as we're going. Osprey's building up knocks and bruises as the as the tournament's going on. Mm. With this match, it becomes Takagi targeting the arm. Not for a prolonged Tanahashi-like persistent attack throughout the whole match. But there are various moments where he's trying to disarm his hidden blade and also weaken him to the point that when he does go for the Stormbreaker later on, he can't get him up and he has to do like a half lift on the Stormbreaker. The tipping point with that comes out of the counter of Hidden Blade as well. He sort of catches the arm and then wrenches it. And the commentator, I can't remember which of the two commentators, um, obviously listening to the English comms, he he's surprised that the arm break the arm bar's not applied and he just goes for the wrench which is it's like using it as a dragon screw almost yeah. to the arm but i but maybe it's because takagi isn't much of a submission wrestler he doesn't have a big submission hold or anything so why not just use it more for your power and weaken him for your own way of wrestling yeah, and that, and that does make sense. I mean, I'm struggling to think of many submissions that I've ever seen Shingo attempt, so I guess it checks out. But yeah, it's also one of these classic stories of everyone, know, they know each other's moves and they're reversing reversals, reversals. It's again one of those things where I've said that we should do this as a thing in the future where we, we go through the series of matches between two wrestlers mm. to see if we can sense a, a story going as they go on. You know, you have... Obvious one to probably start off with would be Okada Tanahashi. You could also do, um, you could do Ric Flair, Ricky Steamboat, but it's more just the same story over time. Yeah. But like another another fun one to do would probably be to look at the shifting dynamics in like Brock Lesnar against Roman Reigns matches. Yeah. Or Brock Lesnar against John Cena matches. There aren't as many of those, but each one sort of told a different story. Oh God, yes, yeah. Or. A great example, I think, would be Brian Danielson against Nigel McGuinness in Ring of Honor. Mm. That's something we can think about for the future. So there are probably spots in this that we don't, we can't remember. I mean, like I said, there's always that super fast sequence that, again, we thought we weren't going to get until they finally body, you know, yeah. their, their body clocks kind of warmed up. But there are moments like Osprey going for an Oz cutter. And Takagi turning it into his own stunner in midair. Yes. I, I like the sudden shifting gear, though, it, because it indicates, like you say, A, that they're beating up, but B, how well they know each other. And because it's different, because you said, you've written down that note, that reversal sequence hasn't happened yet. I, it gives the match a different feel, because one of the reasons I mentioned earlier on was are we going to get sick of seeing the same thing all the time is because you, you do get a little apprehensive and as good as Rick, Ricky Steamboat and Ric Flair were, you, you pretty much nailed it when you said they told the same story several times. If you see what I mean, it was just very well told. Whereas what they're doing is with this specific match, I feel they've told a slightly different story and therefore, yes, like it, 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 the pacing caught us both by surprise, which I think benefited our experience of watching the match. And I think Osprey's whole thing is that he is slowing it all down now, and oftentimes he won't do any big moves off the top rope, or, or he'll only do one. With this one, he does still do a lot more high flying, I suppose, because he'll never ever be as strong as Takagi, so mm. he'll always have to rely on 
a certain amount on his quickness and his aerial abilities. So the rivalries essentially now reach the point where they've wrestled each other so much. Not only do they know each other so well, they know each other's moves so well, probably because they've been on the receiving end of them enough to figure out how they work. <laughs> so you've got both of them going for each other's holds and moves at one and like Takagi at one point hits like a an elbow that's reminiscent of the hidden blade, but sort of his version going with the sliding lariats. And you've got at one point Takagi goes for the Stormbreaker and Osprey's able to turn it into the last of the dragon. They both also do the collapse cell at one point or them just being out on their feet. And again, it's both due to this match, but also I think due to the wear and tear of the whole tournament. Yeah. So you got the moment where Osprey's going to go for the hidden blade and Takagi just slumps to the mats. And then later on into that, you got Osprey hitting kicks, then Takagi suddenly being able to surprise him with a, let's hear it. But then Osprey, because of the move, lands on his feet, but he's literally selling it as him being out on his feet. It's not like a a pop-up with a last burst of energy, like the old All Japan style of doing it. It's like he is out, but because of where he is and where Takagi is, he can basically fall into him with a hidden blade. But then because of that, it's a delay for him going for the pin, and that's long enough for Takagi to be able to kick out. To muster up the strength, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, that whole story of the match being that Takagi's basically bludgeoned and already hurt Osprey, and as you're saying, already mentally affected because of the David Finley results. Yeah. And so, towards the end of the match, now, Osprey is trying to keep distance almost with his kicks because he can't get him up for the Stormbreaker. And because he just doesn't have the energy and the power in his arms anymore. And so he just starts kicking him to keep him away. And then Takagi basically bludgeons him into defeat. You know, with a pumping bomber, the, the, his sprinting elbow version of the hidden blade, as I was yeah. saying. Which before, you know, when he was doing the sliding lariats, it was Osprey dodging one that set off the um, sequence. The, you know, the classic fast-paced sequence between them two and then it ends it's like bookended by sliding lariat attempts and osprey dodges the second one at the end and then he's able to hit a high kick this time he can't avoid this elbow and then you know he's not loopy and so takagi's able to get him up for the last of the dragon so there's no like it's usually always like oh we're hitting that last last move and the reversals but with this one it's more like the old all japan you know just hitting a sequence and the other guy not being able to respond and that being enough for the three yeah so yeah, it, it's it's a it's a unique version of it's them it's them at their most shagged out, exhausted <laughs> match, you know. But it's because it's different. It just sits differently in the brain. It, it's uh, to me, it stands out a little more. And I, I am aware there is recency bias, so maybe there's an element of that as well. But it's that pace change for me midway through the match. It's just it it's very different to what we usually expect from these two. Well, it's more that we don't expect the pace change to happen in the second half. Yeah. Their shtick had always been that they're super fast from the get-go, whereas now they're both heavier, older. I don't know if wise is the right way to go about it. Yeah. But, you know, and, and, they're, and they're wary of each other. They know what the other one can do, so they're not as quick to engage, maybe. Mm. Um, I get where you're coming from in that it does pick up, but it doesn't pick up enough to me for me to say that I would give this five stars. I would say I would give it a comfortable four, maybe if I was pushing it four and a quarter. I liked it a lot, but, you know, as is always the case, the 
you know, we've had three G1s now of this clapping only crowd, and it's still bothersome to me. Yeah, and to, and that is something Will's been very vocal about, um, in, all, in all credit to him. I wouldn't quite go five either. It, it, it like it's 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 wild. It's fun. It is a little different, so it's exciting. But it's just not quite five. I think I think the start was just a little. It was it was a very sharp gear change. If I'm nitpicking, but it is what it is. Yeah, like for the first five ten minutes, I was like, I don't see where anyone gets a five star, let alone a five and a half star match out of this. Mm. More towards the end I did, but we'll get more into it as this minimum four, maybe more episode run is going. Because I've got a question I want to ask you about Will Ospreay that I'll save for the next episode. Ah, okay, okay. But until then, Simon, what is that next episode as we've covered this five-star match? But we have another five-star plus match coming up as well, don't we, in the G1? Funnily enough, containing Will Ospreay, as we've already alluded to several times. Uh, yes, this this is the grand final. It is uh, Will Ospreay taking on Kazuchika Okada. Uh, yet again, the student and the master, the older brother and the younger brother. Take your pick on whatever metaphor you're going to go for another chapter in their storied rivalry following on from the last match they'd had between each other which was the main event of this year's wrestle kingdom but until next week if people want to get in touch with you simon with any more offerings of wisdom on match series that they think we should cover how can they do so uh, they can get in touch with me on Twitter, where I'm so known as Simon Cross Free. Free for the number of pieces that Shingo left Will's elbow in. <laughs> My name's Lorcan. That's L O R C A N M U W L A for all puckered out. <laughs> N for knackered. That's my Twitter handle, Instagram, Facebook, Letterbox. If you put in that gmail.com at the end of it, that's my email address. Get in touch with the show at lntwisepod at gmail.com. lntwisepod is also our Twitter and Facebook handles. And yes, I know that there's a silent K before the N in knackered. <laughs> and there's nothing left to say at this point, I suppose, except that my name's Lorcan Mullen. And my name's Simon Cross. Thank you for letting us tell you something. Have a five and a half star time. Until the next time. Last night I woke from a dream You and me were together Tears on my face when I realized That we're still apart I closed my eyes and I tried To go back to my slumber The only place that you exist now since you did depart Beyond the stars I can hear the guitars They're calling